0: Aerosmith by Sinclair Lewis Chapter 17 Dr. Coglin of Leopolis had a red moustache, a large hardiness, and a Maxwell, which, though it was three years old this May, and deplorable as to varnish, he believed to be the superior in speed and beauty of any motor in Dakota. He came home in high cheerfulness, rode the youngest of his three children pick and remarked to his wife, Tessie, "'I got a swell idea.' "'Yes, and you got a swell breath, too. "'I wish you'd quit testing that old Spirits frumentus bottle at the drugstore.' a girl. "'But honest. "'Listen.' "'I will not,' she bust him heartily. "'Nothing doing about driving to Los Angeles this summer. "'Too far, with all the brats squalling. "'Sure, all right. "'But, I mean, let's pack up and light out and spend a week touring around the state.' Say tomorrow or next day. Got nothing to keep me now except that obstetrical case, and we'll hand that over to Winter. All right, we can try out the new thermos bottles. Dr. Coglan, his lady, and the children started at four in the morning. The car was at first too well arranged to be interesting, but after three days, as he approached you on the flat road that without an inch of curving was slashed for leagues through the grassy young wheat. You saw the doctor in his khaki suit, his horn-rimmed spectacles, and white linen boating hat, his wife in a green flannel blouse, and a lace boudoir cap. The rest of the car was slightly confused. While you motored by, you noticed a canvas Egyptian water bottle, mud on wheels and fenders, a spade, two older children leaning perilously out and making tongues at you, the baby's diapers hanging on a line across the tonneau, a torn copy of Snappy Stories, seven lollipop sticks, a jack, a fish rod, and a rolled tent. Your last impression was of two large pennants labeled Leopolis N.D. and Excuse Our Dust. The Coughlins had agreeable adventures. Once they were stuck in a mud hole. To the shrieking admiration of the family, the doctor got them out by making a bridge of fence rails. Once the ignition ceased, and, while they awaited a garage man summoned by telephone, they viewed a dairy farm with an electrical milking machine. All the way they were broadened by travel, and discovered the wonders of the great world. The movie theater at Roundup, which had for orchestra not only a hand-played piano, but also a violin. The Black Fox Farm at Melody, and the Severance Water Tower, which was said to be the tallest in central North Dakota. Dr. Coglin dropped in to pass the time of day, as he said, with all of the doctors. At St. Luke, he had an intimate friend in Dr. Tromp. At least, they had met twice, at the annual meetings of the Pony River Valley Medical Association. When he told Tromp how bad they had found the hotels, Tromp looked uneasy and conscientious and sighed, "'If the wife could fix it up somehow, "'I'd like to invite you all to stay with us tonight.' "'Oh, don't want to impose on you. "'Sure it wouldn't be any trouble?' said Coglin. "'After Mrs. Tromp had recovered from her desire "'to call her husband aside "'and make unheard but vigorous observations, "'and after the oldest Tromp boy had learned that "'it wasn't nice for a little gentleman "'to kick his wee guess that came from so far, far away,' They were all very happy. Mrs. Coughlin and Mrs. Tromp bewailed the cost of laundry soap and butter and exchanged recipes for pickled peaches, while the men, sitting on the edge of the porch, their knees crossed, eloquently waving their cigars, gave themselves up to the ecstasy of shop talk. "'Say, doctor, how do you find collections?' It was Coughlin speaking, or it might have been Tromp." Well, they're pretty good. These Germans pay up first rate. Never send them a bill. But when they've harvested, they come in and say, How much do I owe you, doctor? Yeah, the Germans are pretty good pay. Yep, they certainly are. Not many deadbeats among the Germans. Yes, that's a fact. Say, tell me, doctor, what do you do with your jaundice cases? Well, I'll tell you, doctor. If it's a persistent case, I usually give ammonium chloride. Do you? I've been giving ammonium chloride, but here the other day I see a communication in the journal of the AMA where a fellow was claiming it wasn't any good. Is that a fact? Well, well, didn't see that. Hmm. Well, say, doctor, do you find you can do much with asthma? Well, now, doctor. Just in confidence, I'm going to tell you something that may strike you as funny, but I believe that Fox's lungs are fine for asthma and TB too. I told that to a Sioux City pulmonary specialist one time, and he laughed at me, said it wasn't scientific. And I said to him, hell, I said, scientific, I said, I don't know if it's the latest fad and wrinkle in science or not, I said, but I get results. "'and that's what I'm looking for as results,' I said. "'I tell you a plug GP may not have a lot of letters after his name, "'but he sees a slew of mysterious things that he can't explain. "'And I swear I believe most of these damn alleged scientists "'could learn a whale of a lot from the plain country practitioners. "'Let me tell you.' "'Yep, that's a fact.' Personally, I'd rather stay right here in the country and be able to do a little hunting and take it easy than be the classiest specialist in the cities. One time, I kind of figured on becoming an x-ray specialist place in New York where you can take the whole course in eight weeks and maybe settling in Butte or Sioux Falls. But I figured that even if I got to making eight ten thousand a year, twouldn't hardly mean more than three thousand does here and so and a fellow has to consider his duty to his old patients. That's so. Say, doctor, what sort of fellow is McMinturn down your way? Well, I don't like to knock any fellow practitioner, and I suppose he's well-intentioned, but just between you and me, he does too confounded much guesswork. Now you take you and me. We apply science to a case. Instead of taking a chance and just relying on experience and going off half-cocked, But McMinturn, he doesn't know enough. And say, that wife of his, she's a caution. She's got the meanest tongue in four counties, and the way she chases around drumming up business for Mac, well, I suppose that's their way of doing business. Is old Winter keeping going? Oh, yes, in a sort of way. You know how he is. Of course, he's about 20 years behind the times, but he's a great hand holder keep some fool woman in bed six weeks longer than he needs to, and call around twice a day and chin with her. Absolutely unnecessary. I suppose you get your biggest competition from Silzer, Doctor? Don't you believe it, Doctor. He isn't beginning to do the practice he lets on to. Trouble with Silzer is he's too brash, shoots off his mouth too much, likes to hear himself talk. Oh, say, by the way, "'Have you run into this new fellow, who have been located here about two years now, "'at Wheatsylvania? Aerosmith?' "'No, but they say he's a good, bright young fellow. "'Yes, they claim he's a brainy man, very well informed, "'and I hear his wife is a nice brainy little woman. "'I hear Aerosmith hits it up too much, though, likes his booze awful well. "'Yes, so they say. Shame for a nice hustling fellow.' I like a nip myself now and then, but a drinking man. Suppose he's drunk and gets called out on a case. And a fellow from down there was telling me Aerosmith is great on books and study, but he's a free thinker, never goes to church. Is that a fact? Hm. Great mistake for any doctor to not identify himself with some good, solid religious denomination, whether he believes the stuff or not. I tell you a priest or a preacher can send you an awful lot of business. You bet he can. Well, this fellow said Aerosmith was always arguing with the preachers. He told some reverend that everybody ought to read this immunologist, Max Gottlieb, and this Jacques Loeb, you know, the fellow that, well, I don't recall just exactly what it was, but he claimed he could create living fishes out of chemicals. Sure, there you got it. That's the kind of delusions these laboratory fellows get unless they have some practical practice to keep them well-balanced. Well, if Aerosmith falls for that kind of fellow, no wonder people don't trust him. That's so. Hmm. Well, it's too bad. Aerosmith goes drinking and helling around and neglecting his family and his patients. I can see his finish. Shame. Well, wonder what time of night it's getting to be. Part 2. Bert Tozer wailed. Mart, what you been doing to Dr. Coglin of Leopolis? Fella told me he was going around saying you were a booze hoister and so on. Did he? People do sort of keep an eye on one another around here, don't they? You bet your life they do, and that's why I tell you you ought to cut out the poker and the booze. You don't see me needing any liquor, do you? Martin, more desperately than ever, felt the whole county watching him. He was not a praise-eater. He was not proud that he should feel misplaced. But however sturdily he struggled, he saw himself outside the picture of Wheatsylvania and trudging years of country practice. Suddenly, without planning it, forgetting in his admiration for Sondalius and the health war his pride of the laboratory, he was thrown into a research problem. Part three. There was blackleg among the cattle in Crimson County. The state veterinarian had been called and Dawson-Hunziker vaccine had been injected, but the disease spread. Martin heard the farmers wailing. He noted that the injected cattle showed no inflammation nor rise in temperature. He was roused by a suspicion that the Hunziker vaccine had insufficient living organisms, and he went yelping on the trail of his hypothesis. He obtained, by misrepresentations, a supply of the vaccine and tested it in his stuffy closet of a laboratory. He had to work out his own device for growing anaerobic cultures, but he had been trained by the Gottlieb, who remarked, "'Any man that is unable to build a filter out of toothpicks if he has to would maybe better buy his results along with his fine equipment.'" Out of a large fruit jar and a soldered pipe, Martin made his apparatus. When he was altogether sure that the vaccine did not contain living blackleg organisms, he was much more delighted than if he had found that good Mr. Dawson Hunziker was producing honest vaccine. With no excuse and less encouragement, he isolated blackleg organisms from sick cattle and prepared attenuated vaccine of his own. It took much time. he did not neglect his patience, but certainly he failed to appear in the stores at the poker games. Leora and he dined on a sandwich every evening and hastened to the laboratory to heat the cultures in the improvised water bath, an ancient and leaky oatmeal cooker with an alcohol lamp. The Martin who had been impatient of Hesselink was of endless patience as he watched his results. He whistled and hummed, and the hours from seven to midnight were a moment. Leora, frowning placidly, the tip of her tongue at the corner of her mouth, guarded the temperature like a good little watchdog. After three efforts with two absurd failures, he had a vaccine which satisfied him, and he injected a stricken herd. The blacklegs stopped, which was for Martin the end and the reward— and he turned his notes and supply of vaccine over to the state veterinarian. For others, it was not the end. The veterinarian of the county denounced him for intruding on their right to save or kill cattle. The physicians hinted, "'That's the kind of monkey business that ruins the dignity of the profession. I tell you Aerosmith's a medical nihilist and a notoriety seeker. That's what he is.' "'You mark my words.' Instead of his sticking to decent, regular practice, you'll be hearing of his opening a quack sanitarium one of these days. He commented to Leora, Dignity, hell. If I had my way, I'd be doing research. Oh, not this cold, detached stuff of Gottlieb, but really practical work. And then I'd have some fellow like Sondalius take my results and jam them down people's throats and I'd make them and their cattle and their tabby cats healthy, whether they wanted to be or not. That's what I'd do. In this mood, he read in his Minneapolis paper, between a half-column on the marriage of the light middleweight champion and three lines devoted to the lynching of an IWW agitator, the announcement, Gustav Sundelius, well-known authority on cholera prevention, will give an address on Heroes of Health, at the university summer school next Friday evening. He ran into the house, gloating. Lee, Sondalius going to lecture in Minneapolis. I'm going. Come on. We'll hear him and have a bat in everything. No, you run down by yourself. Be fine for you to get away from the town and the family and me for a while. I'll go down with you in the fall. Honestly, if I'm not in the way... Maybe you can manage to have a good, long talk with Dr. Sondalius. Fat chance. The big city physicians and the state health authorities will be standing around him ten deep. But I'm going. Part 4. The prairie was hot. The wheat rattled in a weary breeze. The day coach was gritty with cinders. Martin was cramped by the hours of slow riding. He drowsed and smoked and meditated. "'I'm going to forget medicine and everything else,' he vowed. "'I'll go up and talk to somebody in the smoker and tell him I'm a shoe salesman.' He did. Unfortunately, his confidant happened to be a real shoe salesman, with a large curiosity as to what firm Martin represented, and he returned to the day coach with a renewed sense of injury. When he reached Minneapolis in mid-afternoon, He hastened to the university and besought a ticket to the Sondelius lecture, before he had even found a hotel, though not before he had found the long glass of beer which he had been picturing for a hundred miles. He had an informal but agreeable notion of spending his first evening of freedom in dissipation. Somewhere he would meet a company of worthies who would succor him with laughter and talk and many drinks—not too many drinks, of course— and motor very rapidly to Lake Minnetonka for a moonlight swim. He began his search for the brethren by having a cocktail at a hotel bar and dinner in a Hennepin Avenue restaurant. Nobody looked at him. Nobody seemed to desire a companion. He was lonely for Leora, and all his state of grace, all his earnest and simple-hearted devotion to carousal, degenerated into sleepiness. As he turned and turned in his hotel bed, he lamented, And probably the Sondalius lecture will be rotten. Probably he's simply another Roscoe geek. Part 5 In the hot night, desultory students wandered up to the door of the lecture hall, scanned the modest Sondalius poster, and ambled away. Martin was half-minded to desert with them, and he went in sulkily the hall was a third full of summer students and teachers, and men who might have been doctors or school principals. He sat at the back, fanning with his straw hat, disliking the man with side whiskers who shared the row with him, disapproving of Gustav Sondalius, and, as to himself, having no good opinions whatever. Then the room was charged with vitality. Down the central aisle ineffectively attended by a small fussy person, thundered a man with a smile, a broad brow, and a straw pile of curly flaxen hair. A Newfoundland dog of a man. Martin sat straight. He was strengthened to endure even the depressing man with side-whiskers, as Sandalius launched out in a musical bellow with Swedish pronunciation and Swedish sing-song. The medical profession can have but one desire— to destroy the medical profession. As for the layman, they can be sure of but one thing. Nine-tenths of what they know about health is not so. And with the other tenth, they do nothing. As Butler shows in Erewhon, the swine stole that idea from me, too, maybe thirty years before I ever got it, the only crime for which we should hang people is having tuberculosis. Mmph grunted the studious audience, doubtful whether it was fitting to be amused, offended, bored, or edified. Sandalius was a roarer and a playboy, but he knew incantations. With him, Martin watched the heroes of Yellow Fever, Reed, Agramonti, Carroll, and Lazier. With him, he landed in a Mexican port, stilled with the plague, and famished beneath a virulent sun. With him rode up the mountain trails to a hill town rotted with typhus. with him, in crawling August, when babies were parched skeletons, fought an ice trust beneath the gift and blunted sword of the law. That's what I want to do, not just tinker at a lot of worn-out bodies, but make a new world. Martin hungered, gosh, I'd follow him through fire and the way he lays out the crepe hangers that criticize public health results. If I could only manage to meet him and talk to him for a couple of minutes. He lingered after the lecture. A dozen people surrounded Sondalius on the platform. A few shook hands. A few asked questions. A doctor worried. But how about the danger of free clinics and all those things drifting into socialism? Martin stood back till Sondelius had been deserted. A janitor was closing the windows, very firmly and suggestively. Sondelius looked about, and Martin would have sworn that the great man was lonely. He shook hands with him and quaked. "'Sir, if you aren't due someplace, I wonder if you'd like to come out and have a—' "'Uh—' Sondelius loomed over him in solar radiance and rumbled, "'Have a drink?' Well, I think maybe I would. How did the joke about the dog and his fleas go tonight? Do you think they liked it? Oh, sure, you bet. The warrior, who had been telling of feeding 5,000 totters, of receiving a degree from a Chinese university and refusing a decoration from quite a good Balkan king, looked affectionately on his band of one disciple and demanded, Was it all right? Was it? Did they like it? so hot tonight, and I've been lecturing nine times a week. Des Moines, Fort Dodge, La Crosse, Elgin, Joliet, but he pronounced it Zolier, and I forget. Was it all right? Did they like it? Simply corking. Oh, they just ate it up. Honestly, I've never enjoyed anything so much in my life. The prophet crowed, come, I buy a drink. As a hygienist, I war on alcohol. In excessive quantities, it is almost as bad as coffee or even ice cream soda. But as one who is fond of talking, I find a nice long whiskey and soda a great solvent of human idiocy. Is there a cool place with some pilsner here in Detroit? No, where am I tonight? Minneapolis? I understand there's a good beer garden, and we can get the trolley right near here. Sondalius stared at him. Oh, I have a taxi waiting. Martin was abashed by this luxury. In the taxi cab, he tried to think of the proper things to say to a celebrity. Tell me, doctor, do they have city health boards in Europe? Sondalius ignored him. Did you see that girl going by? What ankles? What shoulders? Is it good beer at the beer garden? Have they any decent cognac? Do you know Courvoisier, 1865, Cognac? Oof, lecturing. I swear I will give it up. And wearing dress clothes a night like this? You know, I mean, all the crazy things I say in my lectures. But let us now forget being earnest. Let us drink. Let us sing Der Graf von Luxemburg. Let us detach exquisite girls from their escorts. Let us discuss the joys of Die Meistersinger, which only I appreciate. In the Beer Garden, the tremendous sandalious discourse of the Cosmos Club, Halla's investigation of infant mortality, the suitability of combining Benedictine and Applejack, Beeritz, Lord Haldane, the Doan Buckley method of milk examination, George Gissing, and Omar Thermidor— Martin looked for a connection between Sondalius and himself, as one does with the Notorious, or with People Met Abroad. He might have said, I think I met a man who knows you, or I have had the pleasure of reading all your articles. But he fished with, Did you ever run into the two big men in my medical school, Winamac, Dean Silva, and Max Gottlieb? Silva? I don't remember. But Gottlieb? You know him? "'Oh!' Sondalius waved his mighty arms. "'The greatest! The spirit of science! "'I had the pleasure to talk with him at McGurk. "'He would not sit here bawling like me. "'He makes me like a circus clown. "'He takes all my statements about epidemiology "'and shows me I am a fool. "'Ho, ho, ho!' he beamed, "'and was off on a denunciation of high tariff.' Each topic had its suitable refreshment. Sondalius was a fantastic drinker, and zinc-lined. He mixed pilsner, whiskey, black coffee, and a liquid which the waiter asserted to be absinthe. I should go to bed at midnight, he lamented, but it is a cardinal sin to interrupt good talk. Just tempt me a little. I am an easy one to be tempted, but I must have five hours sleep. Absolute. I lecture in—it's some place in Iowa—tomorrow evening. Now that I am past fifty, I cannot get along with three hours as I used to, and yet I have found so many new things that I want to talk about. He was more eloquent than ever. Then he was annoyed. A surly-looking man at the next table listened and peered and laughed at them. Sondalius dropped from Hafkin's cholera serum to an irate— if that fellow stares at me some more, I am going over and kill him. I am a peaceful man, now that I am not so young, but I do not like starers. I will go and argue with him. I will just hit him a little. While the waiters came rushing, Sondalius charged the man, threatened him with enormous fists, then stopped, shook hands repeatedly, and brought him back to Martin. This is a born countryman of mine, from Gothenburg. He is a carpenter." "'Sit down, Nilsson. Sit down and have a drink. Waiter!' The carpenter was a socialist, a Swedish Seventh-day Adventist, a ferocious arguer, and fond of drinking aquavit. He denounced Sandalius as an aristocrat. He denounced Martin for his ignorance of economics. He denounced the waiter concerning the brandy. Sandalius and Martin and the waiter answered with vigor, and the conversation became admirable.' Presently, they were turned out of the beer garden, and the three of them crowded into the still-waiting taxicab, which shook to their debating. Where they went, Martin could never trace. He may have dreamed the whole tale. Once they were apparently in a roadhouse on a long street, which must have been University Avenue. Once in a saloon on Washington Avenue South, where three tramps were sleeping at the end of the bar. Once in the carpenter's house— where an unexplained man made coffee for them. Wherever they might be, they were at the same time in Moscow and Curacao and Merwilemba. The carpenter created communistic states, while Sandelius, proclaiming that he did not care whether he worked under socialism or an emperor, so long as he could bully people into being well, annihilated tuberculosis, and by dawn had cancer fleeing. They parted at four. Tearfully swearing to meet again in Minnesota or Stockholm, in Rio or on the southern seas, and Martin started for Wheatsylvania to put an end to all this nonsense of allowing people to be ill. And the great god Sondalius had slain Dean Silva, as Silva had slain Gottlieb. Gottlieb had slain Encore Edwards, the playful chemist. Edwards had slain Doc Vickerson. And Vickerson had slain the minister's son who had a real trapeze in his barn. Chapter 18. Dr. Woestein of Vanderhide's Grove acted in spare time as superintendent of health for Crimson County, but the office was not well paid, and it did not greatly interest him. When Martin burst in and offered to do all the work for half the pay, Woestein accepted with benevolence assuring him that it would have a great effect on his private practice. It did. It almost ruined his private practice. There was never an official appointment. Martin signed Woestein's name, spelling it in various interesting ways depending on how he felt, to papers, and the Board of County Commissioners recognized Martin's limited power. But the whole thing was probably illegal. There was small science and considerably less heroism in his first furies as a health officer, but a great deal of irritation for his fellow townsmen. He poked into yards, he denounced Mrs. Beeson for her reeking ash barrels, Mr. Norblum for piling manure on the street, and the school board for the school ventilation and lack of instruction in tooth-brushing. The citizens had formerly been agitated by his irreligion, his moral looseness, and his lack of local patriotism. But when they were prodded out of their comfortable and probably beneficial dirt, they exploded. Martin was honest and appallingly earnest. But if he had the innocence of the dove, he lacked the wisdom of the serpent. He did not make them understand his mission. He scarce tried to make them understand. His authority, as Wostein's alter ego, was imposing on paper but feeble in action, and it was worthless against the stubbornness which he aroused. He advanced from garbage spying to a drama of infection. The community at Delft had a typhoid epidemic, which slackened and continually reappeared. The villagers believed that it came from a tribe of squatters six miles up the creek. And they considered lynching the offenders, as a practical protest and an interesting break in wheat farming. When Martin insisted that in six miles the creek would purify any waste and that the squatters were probably not the cause, he was amply denounced. He's a fine one, he is, to go around blatting that we'd ought to have more health precautions. Here we go and show him where there's some hellhounds that ought to be shot, and them only bohunks, anyway and he doesn't do a darn thing but shoot a lot of hot air about germicidal effect or whatever the fool thing is, remarked Kays, the wheat buyer at the Delft elevator. Flashing through the county, not neglecting, but certainly not enlarging his own practice, Martin mapped every recent case of typhoid within five miles of Delft. He looked into milk routes and grocery deliveries. He discovered that most of the cases had appeared after the visits of an itinerant seamstress, a spinster, virtuous, and almost painfully hygienic. She had had typhoid four years before. She's a chronic carrier of the bugs. She's got to be examined, he announced. He found her sewing at the house of an old farmer preacher. With modest indignation, she refused to be examined and as he went away she could be heard weeping at the insult, while the preacher cursed him from the doorstep. He returned with the township police officer, and had the seamstress arrested and confined in the segregation ward of the county poor farm. In her discharges he found billions of typhoid bacilli. The frail and decent body was not comfortable in the board-lined whitewashed ward, She was shamed and frightened. She had always been well-beloved, a gentle, shabby, bright-eyed spinster who brought presents to the babies, helped the overworked farmwives to cook dinner, and sang to the children in her thin sparrow voice. Martin was reviled for persecuting her. He wouldn't dare pick on her if she wasn't so poor, they said, and they talked of a jail delivery. Martin fretted. He called upon the seamstress at the poor farm. He tried to make her understand that there was no other place for her. He brought her magazines and sweets. But he was firm. She could not go free. He was convinced that she had caused at least one hundred cases of typhoid, with nine deaths. The county derided him. Cause typhoid now, when she had been well for four years? The county commissioners and the county board of health called Dr. Hesslinken from the next county. He agreed with Martin and his maps. Every meeting of the commissioners was a battle now, and it was uncertain whether Martin would be ruined or throned. Leora saved him and the seamstress. "'Why not take up a collection to send her off to some big hospital, where she can be treated, or where they can keep her if she can't be cured?' said she." The seamstress entered a sanitarium, and was amiably forgotten by everyone for the rest of her life. And his recent enemies said of Martin, "'He's mighty smart, and right on the job.'" Hesselink drove over to inform him, "'You did pretty well this time, Aerosmith. Glad to see you're settling down to business.'" Martin was slightly cocky, and immediately bounded after a fine new epidemic. He was so fortunate as to have a case of smallpox, and several which he suspected. Some of these lay across the border in Mencken County, Hesselink's domain, and Hesselink laughed at him. It's probably chickenpox, except your one case. Mighty rarely you get smallpox in summer, he chuckled. While Martin raged up and down the two counties, proclaiming the scourge, imploring everyone to be vaccinated, thundering— There's going to be all hell let loose here in ten or fifteen days. But the United Brethren Parson, who served chapels in Wheatsylvania and two other villages, was an anti-vaccinationist, and he preached against it. The villages sided with him. Martin went from house to house, beseeching them, offering to treat them without charge. As he had never taught them to love him and follow him as a leader, they questioned— they argued long and easily on doorsteps, they cackled that he was drunk. Though for weeks his strongest draft had been the acrid coffee of the countryside, they peeped one to another that he was drunk every night, that the United Brethren minister was about to expose him from the pulpit. And ten dreadful days went by, and fifteen, and all but the first case did prove to be chickenpox. Heselink gloated, and the village roared, and Martin was the butt of the land. He had only a little resented their gossip about his wickedness. Only in evenings of slow depression had he meditated upon fleeing from them. But at their laughter, he was black furious. Leora comforted him with cool hands. "'It'll pass over,' she said. "'But it did not pass.' By autumn it had become such a burlesque epic as peasants love through all the world. He had, they mirthfully related, declared that anybody who kept hogs would die of smallpox. He had been drunk for a week and diagnosed everything from gallstones to heartburn as smallpox. They greeted him, with no meaning of offense in their snickering. "'Got a pimple on my chin, Doc. What is it, smallpox?' More terrible than their rage is the people's laughter, and if it rends tyrants, with equal zest it pursues the saint and wise man, and befouls their treasure. When the neighborhood suddenly achieved a real epidemic of diphtheria, and Martin shakily preached antitoxin, one half of them remembered his failure to save Mary Novak, and the other half clamored, "'Oh, give us a rest. You got epidemics on the brain.' that a number of children quite adequately died did not make them relinquish their comic epic. Then it was that Martin came home to Leora and said quietly, I'm licked. I gotta get out. Nothing more I can do here. Take years before they'd trust me again. They're so damned humorous. I'm going to go get a real job. Public health. I'm so glad. You're too good for them here. We'll find some big place where they'll appreciate your work. No, that's not fair. I've learned a little something. I've failed here. I've antagonized too many people. I didn't know how to handle them. We could stick it out, and I would, except that life is short, and I think I'm a good worker in some ways. Been worrying about being a coward, about running away, turning my... What is it? Turning my hand from the plow. I don't care now. By God, I know what I can do. Gottlieb saw it. And I want to get to work. On we go. All right? Of course. Part two. He had read in the Journal of the American Medical Association that Gustav Sondelius was giving a series of lectures at Harvard he wrote asking whether he knew of a public health appointment. Sondalius answered, in a profane and bloody scrawl, that he remembered with joy their Minneapolis vacation, that he disagreed with Entwile of Harvard about the nature of metathrombin, that there was an excellent Italian restaurant in Boston, and that he would inquire among his health official friends as to a position. Two days later, he wrote that Dr. Almus Pickerbaugh director of public health in the city of Nautilus, Iowa, was looking for a second-in-command, and would probably be willing to send particulars. Leora and Martin swooped on an almanac. "'Gosh! 69,000 people in Nautilus! Against 366 here! No, wait, it's 367 now, with that new baby of Pete Yeska's that the dirty swine called in Hesselink for. People!' people that can talk, theaters, maybe concerts. Leora will be like a pair of kids let loose from school. He telegraphed for details to the enormous interest for the station agent, who was also telegraph operator. The mimeographed form which was sent to him said that Dr. Pickerbaugh required an assistant who would be the only full-time medical officer besides Pickerbaugh himself, as the clinic and school doctors were private physicians working part-time. The assistant would be epidemiologist, bacteriologist, and manager of the office clerks, the nurses, and the lay inspectors of dairies and sanitation. The salary would be $2,500 a year, against the fifteen or 1600 Martin was making in Wheatsylvania. Proper recommendations were desired. Martin wrote to Sondalius, to Dad Silva, and to Max Gottlieb, now at the McGurk Institute in New York. Dr. Pickerbaugh informed him, I have received very pleasant letters from Dean Silva and Dr. Sondalius about you, but the letter from Dr. Gottlieb is quite remarkable. He says you have rare gifts as a laboratory man. I take great pleasure in offering you the appointment. Kindly wire. Not till then did Martin completely realize that he was leaving Wheatsylvania. The tedium of Bert Tozer's nagging, the spying of Pete Yeska and the Norblums, the inevitability of turning, as so many unchanging times he had turned, south from the Leopolis Road at the two-mile grove, and following again that weary, flat, unbending trail. The superiority of Dr. Hesslink and the malice of Dr. Coughlin, the round which left him no time for his dusty laboratory— leaving it all for the achievement and splendor of the great city of Nautilus. Leora, we're going. We're really going. Part 3 Bert Tozer said, You know, by golly, there's folks that would call you a traitor, after all we've done for you, even if you did pay back the thousand, to let some other doc come in here and get all that influence away from the family. Ada Quist said, I guess if you ain't any too popular with the folks around here, you'll have one fine time in a big city like Nautilus. Well, Bert and me are going to get married next year. And when you two swells make a failure of it, I suppose we'll have to take care of you at our house when you come sneaking back. Do you think we could get your house at the same rent you paid for it? Oh, Bert, why couldn't we take Mart's office instead? It would save money— "'Well, I've always said since we were in school together "'you couldn't stand a decent regular life, Ori.' "'Mr. Tozer said, "'I simply can't understand it, with everything going so nice. "'Why, you'd be making three, four thousand a year someday "'if you just stuck to it. "'Haven't we tried to treat you nice? "'I don't like to have my little girl go away and leave me alone, "'now I'm getting on in years. "'And Bert gets so cranky with me and Mother.' "'but you and Ori would always kind of listen to us. "'Can't you fix it somehow so you could stay?' "'Pete Yeska said, "'Doc, you could have knocked me down with a feather "'when I heard you were going. "'Course you and me have scrapped about this drug business, "'but Lord, I've been kind of half thinking "'about coming around sometime "'and offering you a partnership "'and let you run the drug end to suit yourself, "'and we could get the Buick agency maybe "'and work up a nice little business.' I'm real sorry you're going to leave us. Well, come back some day, and we'll take a shot at the ducks, and have a good laugh about that bowl you made over the smallpox. I never will forget that. I was saying to the old woman just the other day, when she had an earache, Ain't got smallpox, have you, Bess? Dr. Hesselink said, Doctor, what's this I hear? You're not going away. Why, you and I were just beginning to bring medical practice in this neck of the woods up to where it ought to be, so I drove over tonight. Huh? We panned you? Yes, I suppose we did, but that doesn't mean we didn't appreciate you. Small place like here or Groningen, you have to roast your neighbors to keep busy. Why, doctor, I've been watching you develop from an unlicked cub to a real upstanding physician, and now you're going away. You don't know how I feel. Henry Novak said, Why, Doc, you ain't going to leave us. And we got a new baby coming, and I said to the woman just the other day, It's a good thing we got a doctor that hands you out the truth, and not all this guff we used to get from Doc Winter. The wheat buyer at Delft said, Doc, what's this I hear? You ain't going away. A fellow told me he was, and I says to him, Don't be more of a damn fool than the Lord meant you to be, I says. But I got to worrying about it, and I drove over and, Doc, I fire off my mouth pretty easy, I guess. I was agin you in the typhoid epidemic when you said that seamstress was carrying the sickness around, and then you showed me up good. Doc, if you'd like to be state senator, and if you'll stay, I got quite a little influence. Believe me, I'll get out and work my shirt off for you. Alec Engelblad said, "'You're a lucky guy.'" All the village was at the train when they left for Nautilus. For a hundred autumn-blazing miles, Martin mourned his neighbors. "'I feel like getting off and going back. Didn't we used to have fun playing five hundred with the Frasers? I hate to think of the kind of doctor they may get. I swear, if some quack settles there, or if Woestein neglects the health work again— I'll go back and run them both out of business, and be kind of fun to be state senator, some ways. But as evening thickened, and nothing in all the rushing world existed save the yellow pinch gas globes above them in the long car, they saw ahead of them great Nautilus, high honor and achievement, the making of a radiant model city, and the praise of Sandalius, perhaps even of Max Gottlieb.